You can turn to our Bibles in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to use the pew Bible that's located in front of you. And the passage this morning begins on page 1034. On page 1034. Now, as, as we come to this chapter, Revelation chapter 12, I have to admit, um, I come to these next few chapters, really, chapters 13 or 12, 13, uh, 14, uh, with a little bit, I don't know how to put it, um, uh, I don't want to say fear, because we don't fear the word of, well, I mean, we fear the Lord, a uh, little bit of uh, uh, caution, I guess, is how I want to put it. Because if you think that we've had some, a lot of imagery and a lot of truth presented to us uh, in the first 11 chapters, well, wait till these next few chapters. Uh, there's a lot that we come across here, and probably if you're familiar with the letter of Revelation, it's probably chapters 12 and 13 that you might be the most familiar with, just some of the imagery that we have here uh, uh, found in these two chapters. And so I just always appreciate your prayers during the week and during my uh, preparation study of God's Word to present on Sundays. Uh, just always humbled before the Lord to make sure I don't overstate or understate uh, what the Lord has given to us in His Word. And so we come to this chapter 12, and this chapter, really chapters 12, 13, and 14, are another interlude uh, in the letter of Revelation. Because as we saw last week there in chapter 11, verse 15, with the blowing of the seventh trumpet, and we, we heard from the, uh, the loud voices that cried out that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, uh, we heard from the 24 elders, just really as they give God thanks for his judgment that is to come. Well, there's going to be an interlude from that seventh trumpet. Uh, and really what will begin in chapter 15, but not actually until chapter 16 with the pouring out of the seven bowl judgments. And so what we have here in between the seventh trumpet and the first bowl being poured out is another interlude and that interlude. And that doesn't mean that there's like a separation of time necessarily between the seventh trumpet and the first bowl poured out there in Revelation 16, verse 1. But what we are given here in this interlude, as we have in the past interludes, we're just given more information. Uh, John is just receiving more visions from the Lord about what is happening uh, on earth. And so... Next Sunday, Lord willing, actually, I might have to say two Sundays from now, because I think today's message is going to be two parts. I was already wondering that when I was putting my message together, because I think my notes are 11 pages, note 10 pages, and normally they're about seven. So this might be a two-part sermon here today. But when we get to chapter 13, what we're going to see is that in chapter 13, it is about the Antichrist and his attacks upon the church. And so that event is really still future even to us today. And then as we get to chapter 14, that is all about God warning the people of earth about the coming judgment, calling them to, to repentance, to come to Christ. And I see chapter 14 also as during that time of the tribulation of, of God calling people to repentance. But here in chapter 12, which begins this interlude... Chapter 12 is not so much situated in the tribulation time period, 
but it really functions as a backstory to the tribulation. And so we're all familiar with movies. You know, a movie comes out, and then there's usually sequels, right? That means events that happen after the time of the movie. But then there's sometimes where we're given, what are they called? Not sequels, but what? Prequels, that's right. And sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. But that's not our focus today. Really, chapter 12 is like a prequel for us. It's a prequel for who is the leader in the tribulation, that is the leader of the, of the one who attacks the people of God. And it's not just going to be that Antichrist who is a man, but ultimately it is Satan himself, or as he's going to be referred to many times in chapter 12 as the dragon. And so chapter 12, we learn about the arch enemy of God who has constantly waged war against God's people, really from the very beginning of creation, and who will continue to wage war against God's people in the future until Christ returns and defeats him. And so this morning as we come to this chapter 12, I'm going to break it up really kind of into two parts. The second part, though, is going to have a lot more information in it. But the first part of this message is the characters who are found here in Revelation chapter 12. Those two characters mainly being the woman and the dragon. And I want to take time to explain who they are. And then we're going to look at the dragon's war. The dragon's war against God's people both in the past, in the present, and in the future. So as we come to God's word, let us pray. Oh, Holy Father, we, we bow before you, and God, we do praise you for the word that you have given to us. This word is inspired by you. You saw fit to have men write over many generations. And God, you saw fit to have your word collected into one book, and you have preserved it even to this very day. So, God, we come to you and we want to bow ourselves before you by by heeding what your word has to say. And so, God, I pray that you would give us a greater understanding of of this letter of Revelation as we've been walking through it. Because, God, you made the promise at the very beginning of this letter that blessed are those who, who, who read it and who hear it and who obey it. So, Father, we ask your blessing upon our time now. God, I ask that you would enable me to be able to explain well what is found here in this chapter of chapter 12 so that God we might understand better your word so we might be encouraged as your people to go out and to live for our king Jesus it's in his name that we pray amen and so let me begin here this morning and I might not get past these two signs or the two signs that are given to us here in Revelation chapter 12. So next Sunday, we'll probably get into the wars that the dragon has waged against God's people. So let me just set it up that way. I'll watch the clock and see where we're at. But you notice here in chapter 12, let me read verses. Oh, let me read verses one to four. It says, and a great sign appeared in heaven. And so what is this great sign? Well, here it is. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, in the, uh, in the agony of giving birth. 
And another sign appeared in heaven. And what is this sign? Well, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Let me read down to verse 6. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Well, these opening verses of this chapter really introduce us to what I'm just referring to as the main characters of this chapter. When I talk about characters, obviously we're referring to reality, something that is real, not just fictitional. And those two main characters are the woman and the dragon. And you need to understand who these two characters are so that you can better understand this chapter. So let's first set our minds upon the glorious woman that's described to us in verses 1 and 2. And let me just state up front that the glorious woman depicts the people of God both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so the woman that is mentioned here, uh, this first great sign that John sees, It depicts the people of God from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you might be asking, well, well, how is that? How can we know that? Well, first of all, the woman depicts the Old Testament people of God. Notice there in verse 1, when this woman is described, she's she's described with glorious terms. It says, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now I'm going to be giving several verses this morning. Uh, Please don't take time to turn there. Um, I will give you the references. You can look at them later and I'll read them for us. But there's similar terminology that's used back in Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. And in Genesis 37, verse 9, this is of Joseph, one of the twelve sons of Jacob, who's later re- or who's named Israel. So these twelve sons are the twelve tribes, the twelve heads of the tribes of Israel, Joseph being one of them. And as you recall, Joseph had a dream that God gave to him. And in verse 9, he is describing that dream, and listen to how he describes it. He says, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers, that is, his other eleven brothers. And said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now, we don't have time to get into all that he was referring to ultimately, but just listen to that terminology. The sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. That reference there to the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars is a reference to Joseph's family, his father his mother, and his eleven brothers. And that same terminology, imagery, is used here of this glorious woman. She's clothed with the sun, just that radiance of the sun. 
the moon under her feet, but then those 12 stars that she is crowned with, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, as Joseph intended it when he spoke about his brothers, his 11 brothers, as 11 stars. And also in the Old Testament, the people of God are often referred to in feminine terminology. That is referred to as a woman who is betrothed to God. Listen to Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. It says, And I will betroth you to me forever. This is God speaking to Israel. He says, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It's just that terminology of of a marriage relationship between God and his people, his people being referred to um, as a bride, as one betrothed to him as a woman. But also in this passage here in Revelation chapter 12, there in verse 2, it describes her as being pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And all the women said, oh, all right. I'm always glad I'm a guy. I just, I won't have to go through some of those things. But she's pregnant. And what is she pregnant with? Or who is she pregnant with? Well, the woman is pregnant in the sense that she will give birth to a male child, as described here in the text. And this male child is the Messiah, the Redeemer of God's people. This has been a promise that God has given to his people, Israel, that the Messiah would be born from them. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. At the moment of the fall, God speaking to the, to the serpent. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." Now, the woman that's spoken of here isn't necessarily Eve, but it is speaking of that a male child would be born of a woman, and this male child would defeat the arch enemy of God, who is Satan. God's made this promise from the very beginning. But notice what is said of the Messiah in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, this is a prophecy of the birth of the Messiah, and listen to it. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, so this is speaking to a tribe uh, of Israel, it's particularly a town even, Bethlehem. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is a prophecy that the Messiah, the Christ, the Redeemer of God's people, the defeater of God's enemy, would be born in the town of Bethlehem. And just listen to the similar terminology that's used in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, of this male child, this Messiah, comparing it to Micah that we just read. It says, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. 
So this child that's born to her, it is the Christ, the Messiah, who is Jesus. And so we know that this reference here of this glorious woman, it is a reference to God's people in the Old Testament. The promises that he made to them that a Messiah would be born of them to redeem God's people, to defeat God's enemy. But the woman doesn't just describe or portray the Old Testament people of God, but it also portrays the New Testament people of God. Now, we know that God refers to his people today even uh, in using language of, of a woman, of a bride. You might be familiar with Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. And there it says, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting uh, from Genesis chapter 2 when Eve was brought to Adam. But then notice what? Paul says about that. He says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, and having Eve brought to Adam in that very first marriage relationship, Paul says that this is a great mystery, and it depicts Christ, who is the, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. And so oftentimes God refers to his New Testament people using feminine language such as that. But notice also here in Revelation 12, look there at verse 17. It says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Now that reference there to her offspring doesn't mean that there's other messiahs that are born here uh, to the woman. But it's referring to those who have been converted, who have placed their faith in Christ. And how do we know that? Because we're told who these people are. It says, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so the offspring of the woman is referring to Christians. The church's offspring. Those who follow Christ. And so when you come to Revelation chapter 12, and you see the woman being spoken of, because she's spoken of from the beginning of the chapter to the end of the chapter, what you need to be thinking is this is the people of God. This glorious woman represents the people of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But please, please, please understand this. The Old Testament and the New Testament people of God are one people of God. Of God. We don't need to say there's Old Testament people of God and there's New Testament people of God and they're distinct and they're different. Because when you read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, the Apostle Paul says, For he himself, that is referring to Jesus, for he himself is our peace, meaning those who have trusted in him, both Jews and Gentiles, who has made us. Jews and Gentiles, both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself. Now get this, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So two people, 
Old Testament, New Testament, but we are one in Christ. I hope that when uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, when we walked through that little mini-series of Old Testament faith, I hope that just kind of helped open your eyes to see that Old Testament saints, that they looked forward to Christ. They, may, they did not know that it would be Jesus, uh, born of Joseph and Mary. They didn't have all those details, but they were looking forward to this Christ, to this Messiah, and their faith was in Him, and that they have been saved by the shed blood of Jesus just as we are today. So this woman, this glorious woman, is the one people of God. But there's another character here in this chapter that we need to be familiar with, and that is the great dragon, as he is described there in verse 3. So John sees another sign in heaven, and it's this great red dragon And this great dragon is the arch enemy of God and of God's people. And we're told some things about this dragon here uh, in this chapter. Turn, look over at chapter 12, verse 9. Several statements are made about this dragon. It says, and the great dragon was thrown down, that is thrown down from heaven. We'll get to that next Sunday. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. I mean, right there in that one little verse, so much is said about this character. One, he is described as a dragon. I don't know what comes to your minds when you think of a dragon. I hope it's not Puff the Magic Dragon. All right? I mean, Puff the Magic Dragon is not fearful, is he? We need to think about a dragon like um, Smog uh, from Lord of the Rings. Am I saying that right? Smaug? Something like that. Smog. Smog. All right, thank you. Just this great dragon just, you know, sleeping in gold, and then when you disturb him, he's just ready to execute you on the spot. That's the type of dragon that we need to be thinking about. And that language is used here of Satan as a dragon because... In all cultures, just every culture looks as a dragon, as a representation of evil. And so that is used here of Satan. In the Old Testament, terms like Leviathan are used, of this great sea monster ready to destroy. And so Satan here is a dragon. But notice also what he's called. He's called that ancient serpent. And when he's called an ancient serpent, what that means is is that he is a deceiver. Now, I want you to keep in your mind, I'm not going to quote this passage, but put in your mind that scene in the garden when when Eve was there and Adam was somewhere close to her, but she is there in the garden and that serpent slithers up. Well, he had legs at the time, so he didn't slither. So he walked up to her and began to speak to her, to hiss into her ear. And you recall, he was saying, did God really say? Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul says about that event in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Paul says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul was saying that Satan, that serpent in the garden, he was a deceiver. He was cunning. 
And he led Eve astray. Now, she was responsible for her actions and for what she decided. But there was the serpent. Did God really say? She listened to his voice. And now Paul's saying, I'm afraid that you as Christians today, I'm afraid that you're going to listen to the voice of that serpent and that you're going to be led astray from the truth of God, that you will be deceived. But here in our text, when he is called that ancient serpent, it takes us to the garden, reminds us he's a deceiver. But he's not just called an ancient serpent. He is called the devil. Now, again, I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you think of a devil, a red skins being with horns and a pitchfork tail or whatever it may be. But this term devil, it just means adversary. One who opposes. Peter says over in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is an adversary to God's people. He is roaming around seeking some Christian, some Christian man, some Christian woman to devour that person. So they would no longer follow Christ to bring a a stain to their testimony of Christ. That's what he does. He's not just called the devil, he's also called Satan. And that word Satan, it just means accuser. It's someone who accuses another person of what they have done wrong. And it's really just this image that Satan is always out there telling God, hey, look over here, this person that's been saved by, the, by, by your son. Look at what they've done. Look at the sins that they have committed. Accusing them of what they've done wrong. Listen to Job chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. It says, then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him? And his house and all that he has on every side, you have blessed the work of his hands and and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. He is accusing Job saying, Job only worships you, God, because he got lots of stuff. He has lots of freedoms. He has lots of rights. Take that all away and he'll turn his back on you. He accuses. But not just that. He is called the deceiver of the whole world. That is, he's a liar. His whole intent is not just to to, to attack God's people, but his intent is to lead this world further and further astray. Listen to what Jesus said about Satan in John chapter 8 verse 44 Jesus said you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies we live in a world that's just Crazy? I don't know. Is that a good way to put it? We'll just stick with that. We live in a world that's just crazy. And sometimes you wonder, how can people, even though they are lost and dead in their sins, you think to yourself, how can they believe this to be true? Well, that's when we need to be reminded that this dragon, 
He's a deceiver. He's a liar, and he plants these lies in this world, and this world gladly follows after him. Where did this Satan come from? Well, we're not told specifically how he came about. But here's what we do know. Is that the devil is a created being. So he is not eternal like God because only God is eternal. If there was something else other than God that's eternal, then that thing would have to compete with God, and nothing competes with him. God alone is eternal. And so this devil, this Satan, this great dragon, he is a created being, created as an angel, created to to bring worship to God. As we have been reading through Revelation, we just hear the voices of these angels crying out with loud voice, singing praises to God, that glory and power and might belong to him alone. Well, that's what Satan was created for. But then there came this time where his heart was just filled. I say heart, I know he's an angel, but use that metaphorically, that his heart was was filled with pride. And he rebelled against God. We don't have time to get into these verses. Just write these down and we can talk about these later if you want to come up to me later and uh, discuss them. But over in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15, Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, and then Ezekiel chapter 28, 11 to 19. Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19, there in those two passages, there in Isaiah 14, it's talking about the king of Babylon. And in Ezekiel chapter 28, it's talking about the king of Tyre. And in talking about those two kings and talking about just how prideful that they were on earth, it appears that the text then begins to slip into using those two kings as as an imagery of what happened to this Satan or to this angel Satan. That his heart became filled with pride. And so he rebelled against God and led a number of the angels that we now call demons to, to follow him in his rebellion. And this rebellious event, we're not told when it took place. It may have occurred just prior to creation, that is creation of, of, of earth and the, the universe as we know it. It could have occurred right after creation and right before, obviously, uh, Genesis 3 when the serpent comes in and tempts Eve somewhere in that time frame. But he rebels. And he has been rebellious ever since. So how to wrap up this here this morning is before we look at his wars next Sunday. Let me just put it this way. This world that we live in, it is, it, it's God's world. He, he's the creator of it. He is the sovereign ruler over it. But he has permitted Satan... And those angels that followed him to have some power and some authority in this world. And as the Apostle Paul says, and you're familiar with it in Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the principalities. That is, against these demons in the heavenlies. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I would just want to remind us. This is something I've reminded us of in the past, but let me just remind us of it this morning. That our fight isn't against the men and women of this world. It's not against the 
political people that are on the other side of the aisle as you. It's not against the people who hold uh, different views than you hold. And even when those views are, are destructive and, and illogical, when we begin to see the people as our enemy, as I've said before, we begin to lose our love for them. And what this world needs is not better politicians. What this world needs is not better people. But what this world needs is Jesus. It needs the gospel. And so as we go out into this world, we need to be reminded of that. I know we know it, but we have to remind ourselves of it. Say, God, as I speak to those in the world around me, I'm no longer a citizen of this world. I'm a citizen of, of Christ's kingdom. I'm not a dweller of earth. I'm a follower of the Lamb. And so we go out into this world, and it is enemy territory. But we must pray, God, give me the love of Christ. To speak truth, yes. But to speak that truth in love. And to speak of Christ to the men and women of this world. So they might hear, and we pray that, they, that their hearts would be open to come to Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is how an awakening is brought to a nation. When the followers of the Lamb go out into this world and proclaim Him. Let us pray. Oh, Father, there is so much in your text that... Um, just keeps us reading and studying and, and calling out to you for understanding. God, even as we have scratched just the surface of this chapter, God, I just wanted to pause and just give you thanks that we are numbered among your people. God, that you have called us to yourself, that we have placed our faith, for, for I know that many in this room who have placed their faith in Jesus and they are now followers of Christ. Oh God, this is all by your grace. And we just join in with those saints that we heard in Revelation 9, that salvation belongs to you and to the Lamb. Father, I pray that we would, as your people, as we go out into this world, it is an enemy territory that we live in. God, let us go out with that love and that heart of Christ. God, break our hearts over the conditions of men and women around us to know that they are dead in their sins and that without Christ, that they will face eternal torment. God, let our hearts break for them. Let us have compassion upon them. God, I pray that the gospel would be ready on our lips to speak of Christ to them, to show them Christ through how we live and, and how we talk and how we, we do our families and conduct ourselves at work. Oh, so that, Father, that by your grace that you would bring that awakening to our town and to this nation. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.